Welcome to Counter Apologetics. I'm your host, Emerson Green, and today we'll be discussing Reformed Epistemology. As you may have picked up during the episode on the evolutionary argument against naturalism, I'm a bit underwhelmed by Alvin planning as apologetics. But one reason I like planning as slightly more than other apologists is that he's funny, and he's sarcastic and rude, which I actually appreciate, and also because his interesting writing involves a lot of epistemology and phenomenology two of my areas of interest. Today's subject is no exception, but those topics can be confusing if you have no interest in questions like, how do we know what we know, or what is consciousness? So I'll try not to make any assumptions or forego explaining basic stuff along the way. So in that spirit, before we get to planning as reformed epistemology, we should take a cursory look at Descartes and what he represents in our cultural imagination. René Descartes, 17th century philosopher and scientist, though they didn't call themselves scientists back then, developed something we now call Cartesian skepticism. Skepticism is a method for separating the sheep from the goats when it comes to truth claims. One way to try to figure out if something is true is to try to prove it wrong. If it can withstand scrutiny and your vigorous attempts to disprove it, then maybe it's right. Doubt isn't a bad or negative thing, as it's often presented by religion. Doubting Thomas isn't venerated for his doubt and his insistence on getting evidence, even though he should have been. Doubt isn't a sin, it's a method for getting closer to truth. Descartes realized that many of the beliefs he used to hold, he now knew to be false. But when he believed those things, he didn't realize they were false. So why would things be any different now? What if some of the things you believe now, sincerely, are also false and you've just yet to realize it? In fact, you'd be crazy to think otherwise. Descartes reasoned that if he examined each of his beliefs carefully, and only accepted the beliefs about which there could be no doubt, then they could serve as a suitable foundation for other knowledge. But he realized that, if he thought about it, he could doubt literally anything. There's no conclusive reason to believe the data that we're constantly taking in through our senses, or how our minds interpret those data, would correspond to reality in the exact way we think they do. For example, I don't think that I'm dreaming right now, but it's possible because there have been times when I was dreaming and didn't realize I was dreaming. Bertrand Russell pointed out that there's no way to prove that the entire universe wasn't created five minutes ago, with all our memories and evidence of an older world coming into existence at the same time. We also can't prove that other minds exist. We can't be sure that we're not living in a simulation. The question of whether or not any of that would matter to us practically is a separate issue, But Descartes realized that we were trapped in a radical skepticism, where we can know nothing for certain. And if you've never thought about this before, really, try to prove that we're not living in a simulation, or that the world has existed for longer than five minutes. You actually can't do it. You can't prove it. The evidence available to you is the same in any case. There are better or worse ways to interpret that evidence available to you. We have helpful guides like Bayesian reasoning, parsimony, Occam's razor, etc. But the trust in those measures of probability, and our own ability to reason, 
is subject to Cartesian skepticism as well. And if there's literally nothing immune to doubt, that means there is no rock-solid foundation for knowledge, and everything we claim to know is ultimately resting on thin air. But then Descartes realized that there was one thing that he actually couldn't doubt, the fact that he was doubting. If nothing else, he knew he was doubting, and a doubt is a thought. So thought definitely exists. I can doubt a lot about my thoughts, but I can't doubt that I'm thinking in the first place. He went further to say that if a thought exists, there must be a thinker of the thought. And he wrote, I think, therefore I am. I cannot doubt the fact that I'm having thoughts. I can doubt what's causing those thoughts. I can doubt the truth value of what seems true to me and every single detail about external reality. But I can't doubt the existence of my subjective, qualitative experience in the first place. It's the only thing I actually know with complete certainty. This was Descartes' foundational belief, from which he built all of his other beliefs. So we'll be calling back to this as we go along. But now, let's jump into the wonderful world of Reformed epistemology. So, epistemology is the study of knowledge. This is the area of philosophy where we ask questions about the nature of knowledge, how we know what we know, what makes a belief justified, and the Reformed, in Reformed epistemology, refers to the Calvinist tradition, of which Alvin Plantinga is a proud member. The question at the heart of Reformed epistemology is whether belief in God is properly basic. Proper meaning that it's rational, and basic meaning that it's not based on other beliefs. Most of our beliefs are based on other beliefs we have, meaning they're not basic. We all have basic beliefs. The question is which ones are okay to hold as basic. Let me quote Plantinga relating this to God's existence. According to the classical foundationalist, some propositions are properly or rightly basic for a person and some are not. Those that are not are rationally accepted only on the basis of evidence, where the evidence must trace back, ultimately, to what is properly basic. The existence of God, furthermore, is not among the propositions that are properly basic. Hence, a person is rational in accepting theistic belief only if he has evidence for it. End quote. Plantinga is describing a view there that is not his own. He rejects the idea that it's only rational to hold beliefs if there is evidence for them. Specifically, he rejects the idea that a person is only rational to believe in God if they have evidence for God. And just so you know, I'm not being uncharitable here. Let me quote Andrew Moon, a defender of Reformed epistemology. Quote, Reformed epistemology, roughly, is the thesis that religious belief can be rational without argument. End quote. As jarring as it sounds at first to reject something so unobjectionable sounding, Plantinga hasn't completely gone off the deep end, at least not in his general claim that there are some things that can be rational without argument. We all have basic beliefs. The value of reason itself is properly basic. You can't use reason to justify the use of reason without begging the question. You'd be assuming the value of reason at the start. Plantinga says, quote, I believe that 2 plus 1 equals 3, and I don't believe it on the basis of other propositions. End quote. You might want to claim that there's reason to accept basic mathematical claims, and of course there is, but his point, which is not unreasonable, is that our intuitions provide the bedrock for such claims. We come to believe that 3 is the sum of 2 and 1 because we just do. It's impossible for us to doubt this. We can profess to doubt this, 
but we can't actually doubt it. Quote, I believe that 72 times 71 equals 5,112. This belief is based on several other beliefs. I hold that 1 times 72 equals 72. 7 times 2 equals 14. 7 times 7 equals 49. 49 plus 1 equals 50. And others. Some of my beliefs, however, I accept but don't accept on the basis of any other beliefs. Call these basic beliefs. I believe that 2 plus 1 equals 3, for example, and don't believe it on the basis of other propositions. I also believe that I'm seated at my desk, and that there is a mild pain in my right knee. These two are basic for me. I don't believe them on the basis of other propositions. End quote. So most of our beliefs are based on other beliefs. But you can't go on like that forever because there would be an infinite regress of beliefs. There has to be a starting point or points where you don't base a belief on other beliefs. And that's what would be considered properly basic. A belief that we can feel okay about holding that doesn't owe a justification to any other belief. Many have claimed that logical truths, like mathematical truths, would fit into this category. Your belief in the law of identity, that anything is equal to itself or that A equals A, is a non-negotiable axiom, one that isn't based on anything else and can't be doubted. As Aristotle said, why a thing is itself is a meaningless inquiry. As I mentioned, reason itself is a properly basic belief. You can't use reason to justify reason without begging the question. So, we all have basic beliefs. The question is which beliefs should be considered properly basic. Proper meaning that it's rational in the broadest sense, pretty straightforward. And basic, meaning that you can't get underneath it. It's where the regress ends. It's not based on something else. We've been alluding to a couple widely accepted examples, but let's keep going. One view is that you can start from beliefs that are logical and mathematical truths. It's very hard to doubt that one and one make two, or that something can be A and not A at the same time. In fact, many philosophers think it's impossible to doubt basic logical and mathematical truths. So while it's not entirely uncontroversial to accept this, logical and mathematical truths are generally considered to be a pretty safe bet for taking on as properly basic. They're not based on other beliefs. They're where the chain of justification ends. Another category of belief that can be safely added to the list? Beliefs about one's own mental, conscious state. Planninga calls this incorrigible belief. When you seem to see the color green, you're just seeing the color green. You can't seem to see green, or seem to feel pain. Even if it's a hallucination, the seeming to see is to see. The fact of experience is immediately obvious, and is actually on more solid ground than even logical and mathematical truths, in my opinion. As Sam Harris puts it, consciousness is the one thing that can't be an illusion. That you are having an experience can't be doubted. You might be in the matrix, or a brain in a vat, or the only person who actually exists, or otherwise mistaken, about the details of external reality. But the fact that you're conscious and having an experience is not possible to doubt. As for I think, therefore I am, some have argued that the concept of the self can be doubted. So the I in I think should maybe be edited to something else, like there is thinking, or there is experience. I'm not committing to any position on the self, since it's not important right now. The important part is that it's not possible to doubt that you are having an experience. It is like something to be you. There is consciousness, subjectivity, etc. In my opinion, every belief after the immediate fact of your experience is probabilistic. Some of Planning as defenders, like Daniel Hill, have used I think therefore I am 
as an example of a properly basic belief. His starting point is I think, and then he deduces from there, I am. But he didn't do any reasoning to get to I think. It was his starting point. So in case it's not clear, here's what this is all coming to. Planninga wants to wedge God into the category of properly basic belief. Again, proper meaning it's okay to have, and basic meaning that it's not based on other beliefs. If I gave you some really great arguments and pieces of evidence to believe in God, that might be a proper belief, but it's not basic because I had to give arguments and evidence. So Planninga is doing something different here than the usual project of apologetics, which ordinarily seeks to give arguments and evidence in favor of God's existence. Reformed epistemology, for those that don't know, is the view that belief in God can be rational even without arguments. So the idea is that there's no reason to accept the premise that there needs to be good evidence to believe in God and still be rational. We've already accepted that some things are properly basic, but most apologists don't believe that God is properly basic. So why does planning a think that it is? The list of properly basic beliefs should be the fact of your immediate conscious experience, basic logical and mathematical truths, reason itself, and that there's an omniscient, disembodied mind with unlimited power whose favorite country is America and has very particular opinions about your sex life. Circle the one that doesn't belong. So again, why does Planninga think that belief in God should be considered properly basic? Planninga has borrowed the Latin term sensus divinitatis, coined by John Calvin, in reference to a hypothetical human sense that provides an immediate, self-authenticating experience of God. Knowledge of God can be directly acquired through this extra sense. According to Planninga, quote, There is a kind of faculty, or cognitive mechanism, what Calvin calls sensus divinitatis, or a sense of divinity, which in a wide variety of circumstances produces in us beliefs about God. End quote. One can feel guilty because God is displeased with their actions. You may have done something immoral that no one knows about, but God knows and is unhappy with you. You might have an experience of beauty and feel through your divine sense that there is an artist behind the beauty. You might have an immediate experience of God loving you. So, in the same way that I see a table is properly basic, belief in God can also be properly basic because of the cognitive working of the sensus divinitatis. Just as perceiving a table implies the existence of a table, perceiving God's love implies the existence of a God. Feeling that God is angry with you only makes sense if there's a God who's angry at you. You have an experience that God is angry with you, and according to Planninga, that implies the existence of a God. However, seeing a table or a tree or experiencing pain are quite different from experiencing God in crucial ways. So before we get to the difference between trees and God, we should talk about the sensus divinitatis a bit more. If it's so obvious that God exists when your sensus divinitatis is activated, I guess, why don't we all believe in God? Apparently God's existence is immediately obvious when you experience him through this sense. So what's going on? And for that matter, why don't I appear to even have this sense? I might see something visually and doubt that it exists externally, but I literally can't doubt that I'm having the experience of seeing that thing. So why don't I, or any of you, appear to have this divine sense? Well, luckily, Planninga has an answer. This extra sense can be damaged. Just like people can be deaf or blind. Apparently our divine sense becomes damaged, or ceases to work properly, because of the corrosive influence of sin. Planninga says, quote, 
I think there is such a thing as a sensus divinitatis, and in some people, it doesn't work properly. End quote. Yeah, it doesn't seem to work properly for people as they become more educated, and it seems to have stopped working properly in a lot of Scandinavia and Western Europe recently. And even though I doubt the existence of this extra sense, I can sort of see where they're coming from. Imagine you could see a ghost in the room, plain as day, just as clearly as you saw everything else. No one else can see it. You might think you've gone crazy, this might generate distress, but if other people also saw it, you'd be as confident as planning it seems to be that there is something there, and that those who can't see it are just blind. One problem with the census divinitatis is massive theological disagreement. More people believe in God than don't, but Islam, Mormonism, and Hinduism can't all be correct. They make totally incompatible claims. Why would God be setting off that divine sense when he's being blasphemed? Wouldn't it make a lot more sense to only show up for the one true religion and not for all the false ones? Why is the census divinitatis of a Muslim being activated during prayer if God considers Islam to be heresy? Even if your transcendent experiences were the result of an undiscovered, extra sense that John Calvin and Alvin Plantinga think you have, that doesn't imply anything about the cause of the experience. If something appears in your field of vision, or you hear something, that doesn't mean that the experience is caused by what you think it's caused by. If you have an auditory hallucination, for example, you still really are experiencing sound, but your assessment of the cause of that hallucination, visual or otherwise, is not trustworthy. This is even true of common everyday experience that we wouldn't categorize as a hallucination. This is true of the senses that we know we have, and the same goes for any hypothetical extra senses. Religious people often commit this mistake. They'll be in church, during a worship service, or praying, and have some kind of profound, or transcendent, or spiritual experience, and then leap to thinking that their religion must be true. It's a total non-sequitur, but many Christians seem to think that having spiritual experiences while in a church, proves Christian doctrine. I actually want to drill down on that point a little more because it's crucial, and Plantinga doesn't seem to think so. Calvin and Plantinga's extra sense is subject to the same skepticism as the other senses we have. It's not possible to doubt that you're having an experience, but as I've mentioned a few hundred times on this podcast, that doesn't somehow make you the authority on what could or couldn't have caused your experience. Your interpretation of your experience is what's subject to skepticism. On this point, Plantinga has admitted that, strictly speaking, your experience isn't of God. It's a feeling that God loves you, or God is speaking to you, and so on. Belief in God is not properly basic by his own admission, but he thinks that if you're having an experience of God loving you, that must mean there's a God who's loving you. Why else would you have that experience? So he says that it's okay to quote-unquote speak loosely on this point, and just say that God's existence is properly basic. The whole argument up to this point has been over whether God's existence is properly basic, if it's justified by other beliefs or not. But by planning his own admission, it's not properly basic, which I thought was the point of the argument. Your experience through your extra sense is of God loving you, or speaking to you, or something like that. And then you deduce from there that there must be a God if you have this experience of being loved by God. So really... God's existence is one step removed from being properly basic. In getting from, I feel like God is unhappy with me, to, it's rational to think God exists, is less like a step and more like a leap. There are plenty of other ways to interpret personal experiences with God. 
The burden is obviously on the one who wants to reduce the vast plurality of explanations to one explanation, which also happens to be one of the less plausible interpretations. We covered this exact point several times in the argument from personal experience and NDE episodes. I don't doubt that you have an experience of being loved by God and many other experiences relating to your relationship with God, but there's an extra step, as he acknowledges, after having the experiences to begin with, which is having an explanation for your experience. That's what's really in question, your interpretation. I don't doubt your experience. I doubt that you're able to discern what the source of the experience was by virtue of having it. God is less analogous to ordinary external objects like trees and more similar to ghosts. You can have an experience of seeing a ghost, and your experience would be basic. You can feel that a ghost is present, and you can even have a personal relationship with a ghost. You can feel that a ghost is displeased with you, in the same way a believer might feel that God is happy or unhappy with them. These are basic beliefs, and they imply the existence of ghosts. And yet somehow, I don't think ghost belief is rational, because one might sincerely believe that a ghost is displeased with their actions. In fact, if someone grabs me by the shoulders and tells me that they've angered a ghost, their sincerity would make it all the more worrisome. If you want to say that atheists have a damaged sensus divinitatis, you've clearly never met someone who fervently believes in some new-agey force or spiritual beings that they can supposedly experience or connect with. They could just as easily claim that they're more in touch with the spiritual realm, or they haven't closed themselves off from it like you have. And believe me, they do. They could even claim that they have an extra sense that I don't have, and they could call it a sensus ghostatus, and that too much science diminishes your sensus ghostatus, which is why I don't believe in ghosts, just like sin has supposedly diminished my sensus divinitatis. There really is no meaningful distinction between a sensus divinitatis and a sensus ghostatus. In planning his reasoning about basic beliefs entailing the existence of strange external objects, namely God, would not have to be altered one bit to support the existence of ghosts. On Planning's account, belief in God can be added to a list of other properly basic beliefs. I see a tree, I'm in pain, and God exists are all properly basic on his account. But there are a few relevant differences between those beliefs. Not all basic beliefs are equal. We can't conflate all of them without seriously confusing the subject. When I was first reading into this, I thought properly basic beliefs couldn't be doubted. And this misconception that I held early on was because of the example of Descartes by planning a supporter Daniel Hill. If supporters want to be more clear, they should stop using Descartes' I think, therefore I am as an example. It is literally impossible to doubt the basic belief, I think, or maybe there is thinking or there is experience. But not all basic beliefs are like that. Consciousness is the one thing that can't be an illusion, but not all basic beliefs are on that level. Planning as two examples of I see a tree and I am in pain only serve to confuse the matter, because there is no doubting the experience of pain. Seeming to be in pain is to be in pain. Seeming to see a tree is seeing a tree. Seeming to have a transcendent experience is having a transcendent experience. How your experience corresponds to external reality, or what caused the experience, is another matter. So yes, I have an experience of seeing a tree, and reasonably suppose that there is actually a tree out there. There's nothing wrong with that. But strictly speaking, 
I can only say that I'm having an experience of seeing a tree. But I think we're all okay with the idea that our experience of seeing a tree can safely be interpreted at face value. So Plania would say that this means my belief in an external tree is therefore on the same footing as his belief in God. I have an experience of seeing a tree. He has an experience of feeling God. There you go. They're equivalent. And I would not agree with that. I would not agree with that because trees, unlike God, are not invisible. They don't have contradictory properties and unintelligible traits. Everyone basically agrees what a tree looks like. Everyone can see a tree, and if they're blind, they can touch it. People who believe in trees have never told me to have faith in trees, or that I only don't believe in trees because I'm angry at them, or for that matter, that there's a special, extra sense that only interacts with trees and doesn't work properly in A-treeists. A-treeists. Thank you. The point is that there's a lot more evidence for the external reality of trees than there is for God. To reiterate, Plantinga admits belief in God is not properly basic. He says that it's okay to speak a bit loosely here, and if you're a Christian apologist, you might think you've evaded serious criticism. Sure, God isn't properly basic, but neither is the tree. The believer can be as certain in the existence of God as she is in the existence of the tree. Not 100% certain, but it's the simplest explanation, and it's certainly rational to believe in. You can't say it's a sure thing, but you can't say it's irrational to believe in. And that's basically the point of this whole argument. But the believer would be wrong to think that trees and God are on the same footing. They're not. As I was just explaining, there are important differences between God and other external objects that we perceive through our senses. God is less like a tree and more like a ghost. You can have an experience of seeing a ghost, you can feel that a ghost is present, and you can even feel that a ghost is displeased with you. These are basic beliefs, and they imply the existence of ghosts. If we consider the reasons we reject belief in ghosts and accept belief in trees, and compare and contrast God with those two things, we can see that zero of the three are properly basic, since they're all about the existence of an external object, rather than merely about one's experience. But one object is significantly more defensible than the other two. I don't think we're quite done with this topic, I think there are a couple loose ends that still need tying up, but for now I think we've put enough on the table. So that's all I have for you today. I'd like to thank my Hall of Fame patrons, Jesta, Phil Stillwell, Richard Crossan, and PreNifty. And you can support this show on a per-episode basis at patreon.com counter where you can earn early access to every episode and access to bonus episodes. If you don't have the money to support on Patreon but you still want to help further the cause of atreism, you can like us on Facebook, YouTube, leave a five-star review, or tell your friends about the podcast. You can also check out our sister show, Walden Pod. Our theme music was written and performed by the band Whalers. The song is called Magic Tricks and was used with permission. Thank you for joining me today. I've been Emerson Green, and I'll talk to you next time.